It is a blessing to uh, be with you, and uh, I think it's even more of a blessing to have you. If there are any children uh, in the service this morning who would like to go to Children's Church, uh, Pastor Amy is finally back, and Pastor Leah both back. We are so grateful to have them. Uh, you can make your way over to Pastor Amy over here if there are any children. Uh, it is a blessing uh, to be able to have them back, and we have missed them dearly. Uh, also, if you're uh, a first-time guest, if you're a newcomer, a visitor, um, these cards are not in your bulletin this week, but there is a welcome table out in the foyer. After the service, go fill one of these out. I have worked hard to revamp our connection cards. Uh, I am, we're trying to get better at um, being about the newcomer, being about the visitor and the first-time guest, and we want to recognize you, celebrate you, uh, and, to, and connect with you this morning. Uh, and if you haven't been here, uh, we are in a series right now. Uh, entitled The Passion and Purpose of a New Testament Church. Uh, Pastor Mike has preached the first two parts of the sermon uh, two weeks ago, talking about what the church um, were, was devoted to. Uh, and then last week, talking about what the church believed in. And this week, I get the privilege and honor of talking about what did the church live for. And the passage today, you can go ahead and turn there if you're like a Berean and uh, want to be uh, already turning to the scriptures, searching them out, is in Acts chapter 17, verses 16 through 34. This is a big passage. We have a lot to get to today and not enough time to get through it all. So I promise Mike and them, uh, actually I challenge myself because now it's a common joke that whenever Colby's preaching, well, let's, you know, we gotta, we gotta move some things around because he is known for going too long and over time, so I have made it a mission this time to not uh, do that to the best of my ability. But yes, in Acts 17, chapter 16 um, through 34, and what we see this morning in this passage, I think is very clearly, there's a, there's a lot of different themes and topics that could be preached upon uh, with this passage here, but one that stuck out, uh, stuck out to me so clearly was that the New Testament church lived for evangelism. They lived for it. They breathed for it. That was who they were. So this morning, I want to ask you, when you prepare for a trip, what kind of packer are you? There's different kind of packers, right? Are you one of those who begins preparing and packing days before your trip? Thinking through all the stuff that you possibly could need, you're looking through all the weather possibilities for the days ahead, the possibilities of the things that you may do. You're, you're kind of mapping out, right? You're, you're not just going with the flow, but you have a tentative schedule of how things are going to be done for those five, three or four days that you're gone, right? You already know what you want to bring. You have a checklist, toothbrush, toiletries, underwear, socks, clothes, pants, right? Or maybe you're like me who just grabs a suitcase or a duffel bag the night before, or the morning of, and just throws a bunch of clothes in and heads out the door. You see, Taylor, my wife, she is a packer who prepares. She prepares very thoughtfully and, and grace, graciously. And I'm so thankful for that. The problem with, with my way is that I tend to forget some things, right? If you're kind of the, do it the way I do it, you probably forget some things too. I have forgotten bathing suits when going to the beach, toiletries, even dress shoes for probably nicer pants that I've packed for maybe a business trip or something. And the, more, the most important thing I always forget is either my belt or my toothbrush. 
I don't know why. Like, the belt is my number one thing I always forget, and it's my most important thing. But Taylor, she, because she has planned and prepared, she usually has everything packed and ready to go. And she's usually helping me going through a checklist. As I'm going out the door, you got your toothbrush, you got your underwear, you got your socks, okay? Those are three main things. After that, we can make do after that, right? (laughs) There are some trips that we need to be better prepared for. And make sure we have everything we have, or that have, have everything we need packed if we're going to be successful in accomplishing the purpose of that trip. There's a business trip, a vacation, family trip, a conference. Today I want to talk about what we should pack when we go on a mission trip. And I'm not talking about what we pack in our suitcase. I'm talking about what we need to pack into our minds so that we are able to help others to be prepared for the, etern- for the eternal trip that we are all going to take one day. When we see Christ in his glory in his second coming. This morning I prayed about the persecuted church. And these saints... The gospel message is so precious to them. They faithfully serve throughout the world in many hard, difficult areas. Their lives are in danger, but yet they obediently suffer and die for the faith that they have, a faith that others need. And while many of us have not received a call to foreign missions, Each one of us has been called to be missionaries, to live life on mission. Missionaries in the place God has placed us, right? In our neighborhoods, in our workplaces, in our homes, in the highways and byways all around us. We are supposed to be on mission. The way we live, the way we speak, the way we interact with those around us affects how we do in fulfilling that mission. Peter tells us here in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15, not 3, 4, uh, Alicia, but 3, 15. I misquoted this yesterday. It says, always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect. Each and every single one of us needs to be prepared. We need to be well packed. We need to have the suitcase of our mind packed with all that we need so that we can give an answer to anyone and everyone who asks us to give a reason for the hope that we have, and we will be asked. So this morning I ask you, are you ready? Are you packed? And I'll impersonate my wife a little bit. As you're walking out the door, do you have your toothbrush? Right, do you have your socks? Do you have your underwear? Do you have your clothes, your belts, your shoes? Do you have the tools necessary to be able to give the hope that you have? Can you articulate the gospel? Maybe you can't do it well, that's okay, but can you articulate the gospel? Are you prepared to unpack the gospel to someone who wants to know, who needs to know, who needs to hear of the hope that you have, the everlasting life for eternity? So today we're going to dive into this piece of scripture. I can't expound upon it all. There's so much here. I wish we could, we could be here all day. 
but there are bits and pieces that I do want to point out. So how did we feel the command then? The command that we've been given to go and make disciples. Not make disciples just here, but of all nations. Well, most people today believe that truth is infinitely complex, relational, and contextually dependent on socially constructed experiences. Living near so many divergent belief systems has led many to conclude that absolute truth no longer exists. It's a result of postmodernism, right? Just multiple paths to one God. Oprah Winfrey is known for this. While evangelizing to this postmodern culture might seem like a unique challenge, it is not. It's not. You see, for Athens in Paul's time, had just as many gods and belief systems as we do today, possibly even more. Even though they believed in many gods, the people of Athens chose to erect an altar to, as the scripture says, an unknown God, so that they would not offend whom they did not know. Does that not sound like our culture that believes in many gods, but not in the possibility of which one is actually true? Right? The rising of the category of the what? The nuns. And I don't mean the N-U-N. I mean the N-O-N-E-S nuns. Nuns that are affiliated with nothing because they don't know. They don't want to offend anyone, so I don't want to be put in this camp or that camp. I'm not Christian. I'm not Hindu, and I'm not Buddhist. I'm a nun because I don't know which path is right. To me, there's no one true God. You see, Athens in Paul's day was in the afternoon of her glory. For having taken the lead in resisting the Persians in the 5th century and resisting Philip of Macedon in the 4th, Athens became known for its military prowess. Athens reached its height of glory under Pericles from 495 to 429 B.C., in which it became known for its numerous temples, its lavish buildings, and for being the center of literature, science, and rhetoric, attracting intellects all over the world. You see, the war with Sparta that lasted 27 years put an end to the greatness of Athens. Even though Athens would not return to its former glory that it once had, its reputation for intellectual excellence persisted beyond, having some of the greatest philosophers known to this day Socrates, Plato, Aristotle, Epicurus, and Zeno. Even though it had been conquered by the Romans in 146 B.C., during Paul's, Paul's day, Athens continued to be a free city that was still known as the intellectual capital of the Greco-Roman world and the religious, religious capital of Greece. So let's dive into our passage this morning. Let us, let us read it in its fullness. Read along with me. And the version that I'm reading from today is the NIV. It says this, Acts chapter 17, verses 16 to 34. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with both Jews and God-fearing Greeks, as well as the marketplace day by day with those who happened to be there. A group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to debate with him. Some of them asked, 
what is this babbler trying to say? Others remarked, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. Then they took him and brought him to a meeting of the Areopagus, where they said to him, May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? You are bringing some strange ideas to our ears, and we'd like to know what they mean. Verse 21. All the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. Man, our culture is not so different. Verse 22, Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, People of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, To an unknown God. So you are ignorant of the very thing you worship. And this is what I'm going to proclaim to you. Here he goes. He's about to dive in. Verse 24. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands. And he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he, gives him, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. For one man, he made all the nations that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. God did this so that they wouldn't seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from any one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, though he is not far from any one of us. Sorry, I just... For in him... We live and move and have our being, as some of your own poets have said. We are, we are his offspring. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like the gold or silver or stone, an image made by human design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day when he will judge the world by, with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof to this to every day, to everyone, by raising him from the dead. When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered, but others said, we want to hear you again on this subject. At that, Paul left the council. Some of the people became followers of Paul and believed. Among them was Dionysus, a member of the Areopagus, also a woman named Damaris, and a number of others. The last, the last person there, Damaris, it's pronounced Damaris, Damaris. I've heard other people pronounce it different ways. For the sake of my lack of being able to pronounce stuff, today it's going to be Damaris. So, but the first point I want to dive into this morning is directly in verses right here in front in verses 16 and 17. And it's this right here. It's very, very plainly put out for us. It says, while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly what? Greatly distressed. Paul was greatly distressed. He had a distressed heart, a godly sorrow, a pain aching within him. So what did he do? He began to reason in the synagogue with the Jews and God-fearing Greeks. You see, following his ministry in Berea, just the passage above this, if you will read, we're told that Paul came to Athens and most likely was waiting there for Silas and Timothy to arrive before starting to preach. While Paul, 
while Paul initially occupied himself with observing the great works of probably various artists of the city, he could not help but notice that the representations of gods and demigods were everywhere. The senseless idolatry provoked his spirit, as some other translations might say. I think it's the NASB that says his spirit was provoked. For he knew that it was wrong to give honor and glory that was due to the one true God alone. So it's kind of like, if you think about it today, have, has anyone ever been to Washington, D.C.? Yeah, there's a good many people. I have twice. Uh, once in high school and uh, actually, no, twice in high school for a trip. Uh, and another one was summer ministry teams uh, whenever I was attending SWU. Um, so I've been there twice. And each time I, uh, I have been there, I have just been amazed by all the, the monuments and the statues and the memorials and the historical churches that are there. So much rich history that has um, happened there that is represented by all these statues and memorials and plaques and so many different things. So I'm trying to imagine here, and this might be far-fetched, of Paul kind of arriving in Washington, D.C. And he arrives there, and he sees all these amazing structures, these amazing buildings that have been constructed that that are timeless and old, all these statues. And many of these statues on there have inscriptions that say what? In God we trust. So I think about that, and I think about our scripture today of Paul seeing this altar that is talking about to an unknown God. And when we look upon our postmodern culture, should not idol worship also turn our stomach as well? Should our stomachs not also be grieved and pained? Are you distressed this morning? Do you have a godly sorrow, a pain within you? that mourns the ones who are lost, who are worshiping these false idols? And like David, are we not to abhor any thought, word, or deed that goes against God? As it says in Psalms 139, or have we become so enamored with our culture that we too have come to believe that truth is elusive, derived from imagination of creation, rather than being absolute and defined by our creator. Or maybe it's just that we don't care. So again, I ask you this morning, is your heart grieved? Do you have a burdened heart for those who are lost? Because I, I, I think here Paul's distress was, yes, of all these idols, and but I think it was too, was he saw lost people who needed to hear the good news of the gospel. So what did he do? He didn't just stop there at a grieved heart, at a pained heart. It led him to action. It led him to action. So he began reasoning with the Jews and the God-fearing, uh, God-fearing Greeks. And then next we see in verse 18, a group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to debate with him. Some of them asked, what is this babbler trying to say? Now in our day, this word might not seem so bad at all. But actually, in their original language, this word meant kind of like a, a seed-eating bird, almost. It was very derogatory. It was very, very mean. And they were trying to get under Paul's skin here. 
And others remarked, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. Here is, God, here is Paul sharing the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. And what happens? Criticism. Maybe a little bit of persecution. So the second point I want to make to you this morning is that evangelism will invite criticism. When you're evangelizing someone, sharing the gospel with them, it's not all sunshine and rainbows. It will be hard. And maybe it's amongst a group of people. There you will be criticized. The road will be hard. Paul's preaching at the marketplace soon led to this sharp criticism from two leading schools of philosophy. The first school, the Epicureans, they believed that the primary goal in life was to maximize pleasure and minimize pain. They believed in the existence of many gods. They denied divine interference in human affairs, especially any, retrib any retribution of a, of a god to a human being. They also denied any form of life after death. The second school, the Stoics, they believed in the divinity of all things, seeking to maintain harmony with nature while advocating destructive emotions. And since you cannot control everything, Stoics argued that one must stand tall and take whatever life throws your way. So in response to Paul's belief in one but true God, both groups call him a babbler, a seed-eating, scavenging bird. After all, they did not believe that Paul had a worldview, but was merely an amateur. They thought Paul was just picking up scraps of philosophy from many of these religious groups at the time and not making any coherent worldview of his beliefs. So like Paul, when we evangelize this postmodern culture today, we must be ready to accept this criticism. Many of you probably already have from family members, from friends. We too live in an age of pleasure first. Do what pleases me, culture. This me generation does not want to answer to anyone, especially to a God who calls them to deny themselves and take up one's cross. But yet they are very spiritual in nature. I'm not religious, but I'm spiritual. Their belief in no single God but multiple ones have left them always searching, but never finding any truth concerning the one true God. When preaching to this generation, one must not forget that since the cross is foolishness to those perishing, as it says in 1 Corinthians, they will attack anyone who lets their light shine on the darkness of their life. Their worldviews are monotheistic belief in a single God as being bigotry, Narrow-mindedness. Because in their minds, who can truly know that Jesus Christ is the only way? That's, we hear it. You've heard it. How do you truly know Jesus Christ is the only way? Oprah Winfrey has argued this over and over. And, and beyond her. But she's one of the most famous ones. We must be ready to handle this kind of skepticism with what? With gentle 
humility, and bold truth. So I ask you this morning, are you packed? Are you ready? Because point number three is be ready to give reasons for the hope that you have. While many dismiss Paul's message as being from a babbler, somebody who didn't know much but just picked up all these weird ideas, others were intrigued and they wanted to hear more. Paul, tell me more. What is this that you're talking about, this Jesus and the resurrection? I want to have this hope that you have. So Paul was taken where? Well, Scripture says he was taken to the Areopagus, which was like the court or senate of the city, which exercised jurisdiction in matters such as religion. This was a wonderful opportunity for Paul to preach the gospel message and to preach it with conviction, with clarity, with courage, with love and gentleness and humility. Because yet, they were not hostile yet, but they were merely seeking to know more of his point of view. So again, back to the D.C. conversation. It's like Paul arriving in Washington, D.C. He's there looking at all these statues, these monuments, these buildings. And man, well, he's just out at the Abe Lincoln Memorial, and he's just out there sharing the gospel. And yet, here comes maybe some people who have high rankings, maybe some high-ranking politicians, and they, hey, why don't you come to the Supreme Court? Now, I know this is not how it happens, okay? There's a lot of legal uh, uh, logistics and stuff that you have to jump through to get there, uh, especially to the Supreme Court, but I'm trying to... Uh... So anyway, he goes before the Supreme Court, and he here, he's here before the Supreme Court, and then not only that, but then you have ABC, you have CNN, you have NBC, you have Fox News, and they're all broadcasting this for everybody to see. And so the people from the Supreme Court to ask him, what is this that you are preaching about? What is this about this Jesus and a resurrection? And so they ask him to share. In a similar manner, when we face potentially hostile crowds, that want to hear more about Jesus. Let us not be frightened, but let us be ready to give reasons why we revere Jesus as our Lord and Savior. Because we cannot know when someone will ask us about Christ. Emotionally, intellectually, and spiritually, we must always be ready to share the good news, which is often strange to a world who no longer believes in absolute truth. These opportunities often come, what is referred to during the water cooler talks of life. Has anybody heard of that before? I've never heard that before. It was new to me. The meaning of the term water cooler talk refers to casual conversations from people in the workplace uh, that people in the workplace have with one another when they're visiting the water cooler. Now, I guess that means water fountain uh, in my terms. They might talk about their weekend plans, talk about TV shows they're watching, films they've seen, sports, books, cars, anecdotes about their families, topics that are in the news, and so much more. These are the water, water cooler talks of life. These moments are very important. So we must be ready. We must be ready so that these precious moments will not pass us by as a missed opportunity. 
So again, I ask you this morning, are you ready? Because next, when we are evangelizing, when we are sharing the gospel, we must do so with gentle humility and bold truth. And we see this so clearly from Paul in the main part of this passage in verses 23, uh, 22 through 31. When preaching the gospel message, imitate Paul and try not to be hostile towards those perishing in their sins. But instead, we can leverage their culture for the gospel's advantage. We are to leverage this, culture, this culture's intense connection to all things spiritual. And that's exactly what Paul did here. He found common ground with them. So Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, People of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. Now, I see this as kind of like a, a commendation of, hey, I see that you're, you're very religious. That's good. Then after that is when kind of Paul gets into the meat and potatoes of things. But first and foremost, he finds common ground with them. And I think we can do the same when we are evangelizing our culture today. We are to leverage this culture's intense connection to all things spiritual. It is not that this postmodern world is not religious, because they very much are. But like Athens in Paul's day, the truth concerning God is elusive to them. It is their anxiety to honor all possible gods that has resulted in their ignorance of the one true God. Even though the false gods of this postmodern era may turn your stomach, we are called to be, we are called not to belittle or put down anyone, but treat them with the same gentleness and humility that Christ has shown me and that he has shown each of you. Explain to them that the only difference between you and them is not spiritual fervor, but faith in the atoning sacrifice of Jesus Christ. That's important that you explain that to them. Starting out one's evangelistic efforts in this manner is often the only way to break down the walls of their hostility to the unknown God that they are truly looking for. You see, Paul was willing to meet people where they were at so that others could hear the gospel. How do I know this? Because 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 20 to 23 says it so well. To the Jews, I became like a Jew to win the Jews. To those under the law, I became like one under the law, though I myself am not under the law. So as to win those under the law. To those not having the law, I became like one not, under, not having the law. Though I am not free from God's law, but I am under Christ's law. So as to win those not having the law. To the weak, I became weak to win the weak. I have become all things to all men, so that by all possible means I might save some. I do all this for the sake of the gospel, that I may share in its blessings. We should imitate Paul here. 
as Paul has told us, imitate me as I imitate Christ. Rather than fulfilling his own personal dreams, Paul sacrificed for the sake of others. He willingly surrendered his privileges and rights so that, he, or so that the gospel message would shine to others and not be hindered. It didn't matter to him if the thing that hindered people was silly or unpopular. It didn't matter to him if the Jews should have been more patient. It didn't matter to him if the Gentiles should have been more knowledgeable of the Old Testament. Paul laid aside his prerogatives because presenting the gospel clearly to people was more important. He demonstrates the exact opposite of the slogan that we hear so often today, which is, be true to yourself. That slogan is a lie. We need to be true to God and honor others above ourselves. Do you do that? Do you put your desires and passions in life, that might be good passions and desires, aside for the sake of being able to share the gospel with those who need to hear it most. To convince people of our world today, there is but one God pointing them to his footprints. God has left humanity, uh, humanity with a witness of his existence that can be found in creation, in the heavens, and on earth. And it tells us here in, in, in our passage today, the God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands. And he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. King David famously said that the heavens declare the glory of God and the skies proclaim the works of his hands. He says this in Psalm 19, verse 1. So while the gods of this postmodern world need people to believe and serve them for them to have any perceived power or recognition, God's power comes solely from his own being. As our creator, God does not need anything from us, but instead we desperately need him for our life and breath comes from him alone. And it says that so clearly in verse 25. God's people and God's call to his people everywhere is to see his footprints of his existence and repent. Humanity is not a spark of the divine as the Stoics believed, but rather we are made in the image of he who sustains their, our very lives. God is not just a figment of imagination of one's mind who can be represented by gold, silver, or stone. For he is wholly other and sovereign above everything. And not only can the footprints of God's existence be seen by observing the heavens and the earth, but also can be seen through the atoning sacrifice of his son. For this reason, God has laid humanity under a new accountability. And so while God has left postmodern people's belief in many gods to go on with the remarkable freedom, he now commands everyone everywhere to repent. And we see this in our passage today. Our last point that I want to make this morning is the fruits of our efforts, the fruits of evangelism. 
It says, when they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered, but others said, we want to hear you again on this subject. At that, Paul left the council. Some of the people became followers of Paul and believed. There was fruit here, and among them was Dionysus, a member of the Areopagus, a member of the council here, and also a woman named Damaris, and a number of others. A number of others. How many was that? Two, 200, 2,000? I don't know. It doesn't say explicitly here. But we can see that there was fruit from Paul's efforts. And the Holy Spirit used him to speak an undying message that needs to be spoken so clearly today. God alone is responsible for the results of our, effort, of our efforts. We're just tools, right, to be used. And how grateful and how honoring is that for us to be able to be used, even though our stomachs turn as we see so many senseless ideas, idols, false worship, false gods, false prophets, false teachers, false all of the above, all around us, we can still look for common ground as we present the footprints of God's existence. Remember the fruits of our efforts are left in God's gracious and glorious care. We can plant the seeds, but never forget that God is the one who saves. The gospel is the one who saves. It is hard to profess the gospel message to this culture today. It's very hard. Many say of the older generation that it's harder than it even was 10, 20 years ago. Often it will seem like our proclamation has fallen on death ears and stone-cold hearts. A lot of times it will seem like that. But do not be dismayed, for even if Paul had only one council member, Dionysus, a visiting dignitary, Damaris, and maybe a few others to come to know Christ, were they not worth the effort? Were they not worth all of that effort? of being chased out of Berea to come to Athens. Paul could have threw up his hands, but yet he knew that there was still work to be done. And even after this, he knows that there is still work to be done because after this, he goes to Corinth. But what an honor and a privilege it is to even be able to plant a seed in God's kingdom. I want to close this morning with an illustration. It's a story. We use the names Dave and, Dave and Sue. Dave and Sue lived in a neighborhood. They didn't know how to approach the situation of having a lesbian couple live next door. To make it worse, the couple had custody of a child that belonged to one of the women. Dave and Sue befriended the couple. They invited them when they had neighborhood events, they babysat for the daughter and let their children play with her. They invited the couple to church, and they loved it. They continued to come. Even though this was a 
gospel-preaching church, and although they knew the church's position on homosexuality and the like, they felt loved when they came. The pastor and his wife invited this couple to dinner on more than one occasion. The pastor found out that one of the women was being abused by the other, but didn't know how to get out of the relationship. Then Dave and Sue sold their house to someone from their church. Dave and Sue were excited that their witness in the neighborhood would continue, but wondered why, after they moved, they didn't see either of the two women neighbors in the church anymore. They contacted one of the women they were closest to, and she said, the very week your church friend moved into your old house, she came over to see us. She wanted to make it clear that God hated what we were doing. She said homosexuality is a sin, and she didn't understand why we were coming to their church. Calls from the pastor and his wife could not undo the damage done by this church member. They never visited the church again. Did that woman speak truth? Certainly she did. Certainly, yeah. Did she speak it in love, with gentle humility? Absolutely not. And for so many in our world today, that story is a story of 100, 200, 500 people, of people being damaged by those in the church, from people who are well-meaning, yet they lack the love and humility and gentleness that comes with proclaiming bold truth. So who was more like Jesus, the pastor and his wife, or the woman who explained God's condemnation of their lifestyle? You see, we need to be focused on the gospel because only the gospel can change lives. Yes, we know what God says about homosexuality. We know what the Bible says about the sanctity of life, about morals and personal responsibility, caring for the poor, and a host of other issues. And much of the world knows what we know now, too. The digital age has been a blessing and a curse all in one. But moving people in their thinking and behavior cannot come through legislation, condemnation, accusation, or even lecturing. True change can only come from the gospel that changes the heart from the inside out of those who are lost and perishing, much like many of us in this room have experienced. To connect connect with our world, to connect with our neighbors, with the people of our workplace, we need to love those people. We need to love them and see them as souls that need the gospel more than anything that they need in life. A gospel that would change their hearts and their lives forever. And your testimony is a great way to begin that conversation. So I ask you this morning, are you ready? Do you have a burdened heart? Are you ready for the criticism that may come your way? Are you ready to give reasons for the hope that you have? Are you ready to do it with gentle humility and bold truth? 
And are you ready to see the fruit of your efforts? And to see what God can do through you by being an obedient missionary. So as you leave the doors today, be ready. Because when you drive out the parking lot, you are now entering the mission field. Let us pray. Lord Jesus, help us to be ready. To be ready for that conversation with that neighbor. Help us to be ready for that conversation with that coworker, with that friend, with that family member. Lord, you know the people that we are thinking about right now. The various people's faces that are flashing through our minds, their names. Help us to be ready, Lord. Not only help us to be ready to share the good news, help us to be ready to be ready for you. You are coming again. And that is the hope that we have. That is the confidence that we have when we read your scriptures, when we turn to Revelation and we see about the white horse that is coming from the clouds, that is ready to slay the evil one, that is ready to take his people up with him. That is the hope that we have. That there will be no more crying, no more sorrow, no more pain anymore. Let us be ready to share the reasons that we have this hope. To give evidence for it. Give us courage to proclaim this bold truth. And give us a heart that is gentle, that is meek, that is kind. And give us a spirit like Paul that is willing to put our life aside. All of our prerogatives, all of our desires and passions aside for the sake of just reaching one person for the gospel. Help us to be ready, Lord. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Again, it's a blessing to be with you this morning, and it is a blessing to have you. Um, as you're going out, again, stop by the welcome table. Uh, my wife should be out there somewhere. Uh, I'll be out in the foyer as well. Go in the peace and grace of Christ. Thank you.